It's my great joy to invite you to open God's perfect and precious Word to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we'll be looking this morning at Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. Last week we talked about the all-head-no-heart church, and this week we talk about the rich church of the poor. As you do that, uh, uh, George Ross is the head of Sin New Orleans, and he sent me a message uh, after our group was there this week, and uh, it said, now your Madison County campus came early in the summer, and now the Lexington campus has come. And he said, you know, I've been doing this for several years, and we have groups constantly coming in, and uh, nobody has worked harder uh, than your groups, and nobody has had a more bold gospel focus with their time here than your groups. Uh, He said that uh, you have a congregation of gospel warriors, and we are thankful for you. I just wanted you to hear that, to know that uh, our youth and the Madison County youth and leaders that went on these projects uh, have uh, given of themselves. They've spent and been spent for the sake of the gospel. And so Uh, What an encouraging word that is from somebody who deals with groups coming in all the time. Uh, I pray for the fruit of our efforts there. I'm going to read Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. Apart from His word, we know nothing about God. Apart from His word, we would have nothing to say nothing to sing, and nothing to pray. But we have His Word. And we know Him. And we sing about Him. And we pray about Him. And we preach about Him. May it be so today. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You so much for the testimony of Your Word. We thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us. We thank You for the revelation of Jesus Christ that we have in this book. We thank You for a Gospel warrior named John, exiled to the Isle of Patmos, but who was worshiping on the Lord's Day, to whom You came and gave us these words. We thank You for the testimony of the church in Smyrna that we will study about today. And Lord, I pray that we would Listen to Your counsel, for it is not just to them, but to us. That we would listen to the promise that You give. Not just to them, but to us. Lord, help us. Help us to understand 
the riches of all those in Christ. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. One of the primary ministries that we have to one another in the church is that we help one another remember reality. You see, we have a hard time living based on reality. We tend to sort of see what we want to see in the moment. We tend to shrink the world down small enough to justify our own actions. We tend to shrink the world down small enough that we feel okay about doing what we want to do. James, in James 4.2, puts it like this. You desire and do not have. So you murder. He says, where does murder come from? You desire and do not have. In other words, you look at the world and you think about this, but you just shrink it down to where nothing's more important than your desire in the moment. That becomes the most important reality to you. And so the extreme example of what could be done. But what's implied in what James is saying is he's not just talking about murder, but he's talking about everything in between that we recognize as wrong, but we try to justify. If we were able to see the big picture and the consequences of our actions, it would be a different story but we shrink it down to where it starts to make sense to us. All of us are in this battle. See, the issue of living in the world with wisdom is not doing that. The book of Proverbs talks about the way of wisdom and the way of the fool. And the fool in the book of Proverbs always acts on his immediate desires. He always acts out of his emotions. Wisdom always zooms out and sees a bigger picture. This is true of all of us. And we must be in one another's lives to call each other to see reality. It happens here every Lord's Day. You come in here, you've had a problem. It feels like that problem is insurmountable and a crisis. And yet you come here and you see someone who is really suffering in ways that you have never even imagined. And they seem to have a joy. And as they stand to sing of the glory of Jesus, your problem doesn't look the same. You've widened your perspective. The reality that that person is living in worse circumstances reframes the way you are viewing your circumstances. But when we don't, when we get isolated, we shrink the world down. We, you know, there's all kinds of people constantly who would say, I am opposed to adultery. And then you find out that they are committing adultery. And, and you talk to them about it, and, and they say, well, you just don't understand. 
We, we haven't had a real marriage, so it's like I'm not even married, so I'm not committing adultery. Shrink it down and define the world by your small boundaries and justify what you're doing. Same thing with the issue of divorce. Oh, I'm opposed to divorce, but in my situation, we were never really married. Or in my situation, it's different. Same thing with cheating or stealing. Somebody's stealing from the company and you say, you know you shouldn't do that. You're a believer. And they say, well, it's not really stealing because I don't get paid what I should. It's just getting what I'm due. When you zoom out, it's ridiculous to say such things. You know, every good coach is not just teaching their players certain techniques and mechanics and plays. Every good coach is in the business of helping players get a better understanding of reality. I've told you before, we always have a point where our brain says, you can't do anymore. A part of a coach's job is to teach the player that they can do a lot more than when that switch goes off in their brain. I can't take another step. And yet the coach challenges them and pushes them and they take 10,000 more steps. They keep doing the drill. They find a second wind. And he's teaching them that they haven't been living based on reality. That what they've constructed in their mind as the limit of what they can do is fantasy. That reality is different from the triggers that they have. This is why the Scriptures can say these things that I'm about to read about suffering. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. What's he doing there? Suffering. You shrink the world, you fixate on the suffering, and you cannot see beyond it. You take a wide lens and you see it in light of the glory that is promised the believer, and now you're seeing with wisdom and it looks different. This is not even worth comparing no matter what the suffering is. 1 Peter 3.14 But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Suffering as a pathway to blessing? We better believe that's possible. We are a people who look to the cross and say, that's where my hope lies. That's how I can be blessed. 1 Peter 4.13 But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also be rejoiced and be glad when His glory is revealed. Do you see what keeps happening? Suffering is a trigger to think about the bigger picture and the way even the suffering of Christ fits in the bigger picture. You are to see it in light of the wide-angle lens. You are not merely to see it through the microscope. This is the message that Jesus gives the church of Smyrna through John, and by extension, to us. 
Remember, John is exiled on the Isle of Patmos. He is in his mid-80s. He is one that refused to say that Caesar was Lord. He refused to offer a sacrifice to Caesar and worship the emperor, which was the given of that period in this context. Emperor worship was the state religion. So he's sent as a political prisoner to this rocky Isle of Patmos. And he's there on the Lord's Day worshiping, which is glorious in and of itself. He's worshiping out here exiled in the middle of nowhere. And the Bible says that the Spirit came to him and gave him the message that we read about in the book of Revelation. And included in that message of the glory of Christ is messages to seven churches. If you were to take the Isle of Patmos and go slightly go east and slightly north, you get to Ephesus, then you get to Smyrna. Then we'll have the next one here and it goes all the way around. These letters are going to churches. And in each one of the letters, it takes something about the vision of Christ and applies it to that church because that's what that church needs to remember with what they're facing. So the first thing we see in verse 8 is this. The Lord of the church, and here's what's unique to this letter, resurrected suffering servant. The Lord, the Lord Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the one giving this message is the resurrected suffering servant. You heard Nelson read about him in Isaiah 53. He is the Lord. But He is the Lord who suffered. He is the Lord. He is the Lord who was crucified and is raised from the dead. The book of Revelation quotes Isaiah more than any other book. And it quotes all kinds of Old Testament books. There's a powerful word to a suffering people that the one who was risen from the dead was himself the suffering servant. Look with me at the first part of verse 8. And, the, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Let's think about the church in Smyrna here. It was a wealthy area at this time. It had not been previously, but it bounced back from its earlier state. And now it's a prosperous and wealthy, not quite as prosperous and wealthy as Ephesus, which we looked at last time but close. The area was known for its well-known athletic stadium and the sporting activities that would take place there. There was a noted library and a public theater. This was a metropolitan area that had all of the things associated with it. But the most important thing to know about Smyrna was this is a place that was absolutely loyal to Roman rule and Roman authority. In fact, their commitment to that was well before Rome became the vast power that it is. And this is the first city in the ancient world to build a temple to the goddess of Rome. They would go on and build a temple to the Roman emperor and even a worship area for the Roman senate. They promoted Rome and its state religion. It was a place where emperor worship was a given. And once a year, you were to burn incense to the Godhead of Caesar and declare that Caesar is Lord. 
Caesar's a title of the ruler. And there's a succession of rulers. The Godhead of Caesar. And whoever is the Caesar at the time is to be acknowledged as Lord. John wouldn't do it. Faithful Christians would not do it. So they were branded as troublemakers, not patriotic, disloyal citizens. Now something else that we have to know is that there was a very large Jewish population in the area. And the Jewish population was exempt from emperor worship. They had to pay allegiance to the emperor, but not worship. And at one time, it was thought that the Christians were just a sect of this group. And so they were free from emperor worship. But as the Christian message became more clear, it was clear that in Jesus Christ, something had fundamentally changed. And now the issue was Jesus. Not the forms or traditions that led up to Jesus, but Jesus. Now to offer a sacrifice since the fulfillment of the sacrificial system had come would be an act of rebellion against the sacrificial system. So these people were saying that the message of Christianity was the fulfillment of all and none who did not worship Jesus, those who did not worship Jesus had no hope. And so the people who were a part of the Jewish synagogues, understood what they were saying and said they are no sect of us. And they were right. If they didn't want to take the message to its conclusion, Jesus, this was a different message. And so they put the pressure on the Roman government to say, look at these people. They won't even worship the emperor. And they caused the persecution to grow stronger and stronger. They slandered the Christians to say that they were a threat to the government. They were insurrectionists. They were terrorists. They were involved in all kinds of activity and they repudiated the government. That leads us to the second part of verse 8. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now this is repeating what was in the vision given to John in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. The first and the last. The, the eternal one who died and came to life. The first and the last. The one that was before you were here and the one will be here after you are here. The one who is eternal. The divine sovereign over history. He is the one who died and came to life. The the verbs here means dead at a moment in time, alive in another moment in time. He is the one who is resurrected. So the resurrected one is the one who is the divine, eternal sovereign over history who will extend into eternity future. Why is he telling them this? That's the reality that they need to face the suffering that they are facing. In fact, if He is the first and the last, the eternal one who died, He Himself suffered to unfold the plan of God. God Himself in the person of God the Son came suffered 
and died. And He's raised again. He conquered death. His suffering had purpose and meaning. The resurrection declares to us that there is meaning and purpose in suffering in Christ. And none of us can say to the God that we serve, I'm suffering, but there can't be any purpose in it. How can we say that? The greatest act of injustice in the history of the world is the sinless Son of God crucified for sinners. He goes on to tell them that not only have they suffered, they are about to experience suffering with more ferocity. Oh, how desperately they need to see that suffering in light of reality. In light of the fact that they are latched to the one who is the first and the last. The one who was dead. And now he's alive. He is the one who speaks to this suffering church. He has an understanding of what is going on in the church. Now something about the church of Smyrna which is significant. He says nothing about what is wrong in the church. There's only two churches that that's true of. He does not offer a rebuke. He goes straight to what is right in the church. And what is right is this. They are spiritually rich, suffering servants. Now get that. If we are the people who look and say our hope is bound up in the Eternal One, the first and the last who suffered and died and is raised again. Our hope is in the suffering servant who conquered death. Then we are to look at ourselves in Christ and say we are His suffering servants. But if we are His suffering servants, we are not spiritually poor. We are spiritually rich. Look with me at verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10. I know your tribulation. Now, the particular word for tribulation here means I know the outside pressure that is squeezing down upon you, that is threatening you. I know the distress it is causing you. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Your poverty. Their poverty was caused by the persecution and oppression. In fact, Domitian, who was the emperor, would often seize the property of Christians, confiscate it. They would be repudiated and rejected through the systems and authorities and fired from jobs and not allowed to have certain jobs. I know the squeezing pressure that is upon you from the outside, and I know that it has led to your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. So the tribulation leads to personal sufferings. The idea here is physical and psychological difficulty and suffering and pain. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. That, here's the purpose, you may be tested. This is purposeful testing. 
and for ten days you will have tribulation. In other words, greater squeezing and pressure from the outside. There's coming ten days. Ten, either ten literal days or ten being a number of completeness. A a period of time where the pressure is even more intense. So what he says here is you are suffering. You are facing tribulation. And there's coming a time for a window. According to the testing, the purpose of God, where the pressure is going to be even more intense. So let's think about this. Tribulation that's referred to as personal suffering that leads to poverty. John Stott says in his commentary on this book, poverty has often been the cost of Christian discipleship. How very true. And all around the world, that is not a strange statement. Because in many places you're preaching to people who know the reality of it. Certainly here as well. But in some places it's so very clear. But they've not only been facing the poverty, they've been facing the slander. That is abusive, deceitful language. We'll come to the Lord's table where we drink the blood and eat the body. Symbolically. But Christians were accused of being cannibals. Many were thrown in prison. Say, so They eat flesh and drink blood. Oh, They are disruptive. They hate the government. They are an insurrection party. This is, a, this is a governmental group that has come to overthrow the system. Now note here, he refers to this synagogue of Jewish people. And listen, John is not anti-Jewish. He is a Jew. <laughs> so, so he refers to this group of people as not a synagogue of the Lord, which the Old Testament continues to refer to the synagogue at, as in, uh, in one of the places you can see that is in number 16.13, a synagogue of the Lord as a synagogue of Satan. How? Why? Well, because the, the old system was always pointing ahead. It was pointing ahead to Christ. It was to be fulfilled in Christ. If you reject Christ, you're actually rejecting the entire system even if you're trying to still live back here. Right? After Christ, if you offer a sacrifice, you're repudiating the sacrificial system because it pointed to Christ. And so these Jews who wanted to claim their Jewishness for their spiritual standing while rejecting Christ are on the wrong side. Let me say this very clearly. There is no salvation Outside of Jesus. That's for everyone. There are some heretical teachers, particularly on TV, who run around saying that Jews do not have to come to faith in Christ because they were saved under a different covenant. That is satanic. That is a sermon from a rabbi of the synagogue of Satan. All have to come to faith in Christ. He is the one that it all pointed to. He's the consummation. To actively oppose Christ and His church is to serve the adversary. Then he tells them, coming tribulation is going to heighten. Many of you are going to be thrown in prison. That is for treason against the government and treachery. And some will even be killed. The one who is going to do that is the devil who is called the accuser. 
Satan is the adversary, the adversary of Christ, the accuser of Christ and accuser of the brethren. This ten days of intense persecution will lead some to waver. But he says in verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer or most literally stop fearing. Why? How will they face this? Verse 9, it's a little bitty clause, but it is so chock full of power. But you are rich. I read earlier 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. He stepped out of the the richness of the glory of heaven to come and take on human flesh and even be crucified as a guilty sinner, though he was not, to pay the the penalty of sin for his people, that all who receive him know the riches because they're tied to the riches of the God of heaven. You are rich. Now notice he does not say, All of this will go away. You won't face any of this. There is no promise to avoid suffering. There is the promise that you have the riches to draw on in the face of suffering. What he's pointing them here is to simple reality. This changes everything. You have in Christ vast and unlimited resources. That is an organizing truth, meaning that all of the other things that you think about have to be organized under that reality. It is not fix everything, it provides the resources to face everything. The purpose of your life is to glorify Christ. No suffering, no poverty, no slander, no prison, no threat of death can keep you from glorifying Christ. Nothing can be taken away from you that is greater than what you have. Now, I know believers all the time who say, I'm not rich. Not just materially, but they, you know, I don't have much to offer. I'm not rich. You know, I can't do much. Understand this. If you are in Christ and you say, you are not rich, you are making an assertion in direct opposition to the person and work of Jesus Christ. He left the riches of heaven and became poor for your sake that you might be rich. Spiritual riches are the reality for all who are in Christ and we must believe it. You have the resources to face everything that could come your way. You. It doesn't depend on degrees and jobs. It depends on focus on Christ. Now next we see His counsel to the church. Christ's counsel to the church. It's this, and hear it. Be faithful, not successful. Second part of verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life. The crown of eternal life. 
Now, there was a huge stadium in this area. They were into athletics. They would all understand the victor's wreath. He says, if you are faithful unto death, that doesn't mean that all will be killed for their faith. It means willing to be faithful unto death. What a believer is willing to do, you will receive the victor's crown, the prize. You will be champions. You will be a conqueror. And this victory crown is not like the ones they win in the athletic arena. This one never fades away. It's victory for all eternity. But the key is to be faithful unto death. Meaning, willing to die to be faithful and everything in between. No pledge to escape tribulation. Call to be faithful no matter what you face. What does it mean to be faithful? Be found believing. Be trustworthy to your testimony. Be reliable. Be always looking back to Christ. Be faithful is another way of saying be living in light of reality. Not the world you shrink down to the point where you eclipse God and the Gospel. Not a world that you shrink down to you eclipse the reality of glory. A lot of times it's very convenient for us to forget that Jesus came as the suffering servant and died and was raised again. Because when we remember that, we can't say the only thing that matters is my pain right now. This is emphatically a call not to worry about being successful in the way the world measures success. That's a mirage. That's temporary. Live for what is eternal. Earthly wealth, the praise of Christ's enemies, and so-called freedom are meaningless and worthless. It's a bait and switch. Here's wealth, trust in it. And then one day it's gone. How long? For eternity. Here's the praise of Christ's enemies. Appreciate it. Be motivated by it. One day it's gone. And there's an eternity where there is no praise of anything for those who are apart from Christ. Oh, here's freedom. Freedom. Do what you want to do. You can define your own freedom. And then one day it's gone. It's a false freedom which reality is bondage. Without Christ, it is meaningless. It is worthless. Forget defining your life by the bank account, the praise of men, and the freedom to do what you want. There may be crowns for that here and now, but it is not the crown of life. Last thing we see in verse 11 is that faithful have the promise for the church. And the promise for the church is the death of death. Look with me in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is the Spirit of Christ. What the Spirit of Christ says to the churches. The one who conquers, that word Nike or Nike, meaning prevails, overcomes, triumphs, has the victory, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Actually, in the Greek here, it's a double negative. Will not never be hurt. 
by the second death. It's bad grammar to make a powerful point. No, not, never. It will never happen. Not hurt by the second death. What's the second death? It is a Jewish expression for eternal punishment. The one who conquers, that is, in Christ, through faith in Christ, will not face eternal punishment in hell. The first death is the death of the body. The second death is eternal death. The believer does not experience that. They experience eternal life. The unbeliever dies and finds another death awaiting. The believer dies and finds that the second death has already died in the death of Christ. And all they will know forever is eternal life. The death of death. That's how we face it. We look to the sufferings of Christ that paid the penalty. What penalty? The the penalty of the second death for us. He has... He has won the death of death for us. In Him, we are the victors no matter what we face here and now. I want to remind you of one other thing. And that is sitting out in that congregation on that day. Some some think he might have been the pastor of the church of Smyrna at that time. Some think he may have been a member and he was later a pastor shortly after was a man named Polycarp. In A.D. 165, he was burned at the stake. Why? Because he would not say Caesar is Lord. Shortly after this, there is a man named Polycarp who was faithful unto death. He had been a disciple of John. He was either the pastor who had this letter read in the church or a member listening to this letter read in the church on February 2nd, AD 165. There he was burned alive. He was captured. And the first thing he did was offer food and drink to his captors. And they told him to repudiate Christ. And he said, "In in 86 years, he has done me no harm. How could I repudiate my Savior and King? They pled with him. What harm can it do to sacrifice to the emperor, they said. I will release you. You're an old man. Revile Christ, swear by Caesar, and have your life, or I will throw you to the beast. Polycarp is reported to have said, call them then. And they said, since you make light of the beast, I will throw you in the fire. And he's reported to have said, Lord, thank you for counting me worthy of this day. And when they went to fasten him to the stake, he reportedly told them, there is no need. My Lord will keep me right here. I will go nowhere. And they burned him up. And it was the crown of life. Now, there's a danger in telling a story like that. That's that's true. But most of us are not facing martyrdom. What I want to ask you is, how did he prepare for that moment? How? You don't prepare for that moment in that moment. He prepared for that moment by living based on gospel reality 
in the daily and the routine. If you have a little inconvenience and it's a crisis to you, you are not preparing for that moment because you're not living reality. The dailiness of simply saying, since Jesus is the resurrected suffering servant, His suffering servants, me, are spiritually rich and I should live to be faithful, not successful by the world's standards. Because Christ has won for me the victorious death of death. And you can take my life, but you can never take anything from me that matters for eternity. But what I want to remind you is that's lived out in traffic. That's lived out when things don't go right in your home. That's lived out daily. Not just in the big moments. Let's pray.